Hi there, Chris here. Just a quick reminder that if you're enjoying these shows, there are two ways you can support the Long War interviews. First, go to the show notes and check out the organizations that the guests recommend. If you're able, please donate some time or money to these groups. They're doing important work. Second, if you're interested in hearing stories about my time overseas, pick up a copy of my memoir, Chasing Alexander, A Marine's Journey Across Iraq and Afghanistan. It was a book life reviews editor's pick, and they say, quote, with grit and sincerity, Martin will have readers who appreciate action-packed war stories and history marveling at this truly enjoyable memoir, end quote. If that sounds interesting to you, you can order a copy at any online retailer. Thanks again for listening. Hey everyone, it's Chris here with the newest episode of the Long War Interviews. I just want to give you a heads up. This episode deals with sexual assault and suicide, which is upsetting to some people. If that's upsetting to you, I'd recommend you skip this episode. But that said, there is a happy ending to this show. My guest today is Courtney Salopek, and I think she brings an important story to the show. One thing that's always been unsaid between me and the other guests is that your squad members and your higher-ups always have your back. Always. No questions asked. It's cliche to talk about being in a band of brothers, like that kind of thing. But. What if they don't? What if they don't have your back? I'm sure most of you have been in a work situation where maybe you have a bad boss or a coworker that you can't stand. But now imagine you're overseas fighting in a war. You leave the wire, go on patrol, get shot at, blown up. And then when you come back and you're supposed to be safe, there are people that are actively trying to harm you trying to hurt you. Can you imagine the stress? It's dangerous outside the wire, and it's dangerous inside the wire. Courtney endured just a hellish situation during her time in Iraq, and while this episode gets pretty heavy, I want you to remember that it does have a happy ending. And it has a happy ending because of the organizations that Courtney brought to my attention. The first is the National Veterans Wellness and Healing Center in New Mexico. They provide struggling veterans with free, week-long retreats that work to holistically treat post-traumatic stress. They use a wide range of therapies, including massage, yoga, working with horses, art therapy, and many, many more. The second organization is Operation Warrior Resolution a nonprofit that was founded by Army veteran Kendra Simpkins. She and her team are on the front lines of combating veteran suicide and work to teach vets techniques that help them peacefully reintegrate back into civilian life. So, if traditional therapy isn't working well for you, or if you're tired of trying to work through the VA, take a look at these two programs. Courtney has a million great things to say about both of them. If you want more information, links to both will be in the show notes. Okay, now let's start the episode. The United States has been at war for the last 20 years. My name is Chris, 
and I sit down to talk with veterans about their time fighting overseas. These are the Long War Interviews. I'm from northwestern Pennsylvania, born and raised, and I joined the um, Army in 2001. It was kind of actually on a fluke. I was going to college. I finished my freshman year, and I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do going back my sophomore year, and I didn't even tell anyone in my family, not my mom, my dad, anybody, and I um, marched right into the recruiter office and signed the papers. I, I asked them what the most you know, badass job you have for a female and it was military police officer. And that's why I went that route. We were one of the first women to go through as a combat MOS. So that's how that mission started. <laughs> nice. So joining in 2001, were you in basic training or anything when September 11th happened? Or oh. kind of where were you then? Yeah, funny story. So so I was telling you, I was waiting. I signed the papers to, to join the military right before my sophomore year. So that summer, while I was waiting for my basic training start date, I was waitressing at a country club that summer. And I, I turned around and saw it on the TV. And, you know, I immediately called my family and my mom was crying and, oh, you're going to go over there. And of course, you know, gung-ho. Then I was like, well, that's what I signed up for, you know, and I, I didn't think twice about it. Nice. It's hard to remember now how frightening that was at, at the time, but yeah. certainly a lot of Americans were very gung-ho. You know, I, enlistment rates skyrocketed, you know, starting on September 12th. So very, very historic moment to be uh, on the cusp of a military career. Yeah, for sure. Um, I hadn't anticipated that happening. It was kind of crazy how I signed up right before it happened. And whether I, I probably, looking back, wouldn't have signed up maybe if it had happened. I don't know that or not. But yeah, I, I get that. So tell us a little bit about the military police. You know, what, how do they differ from civilian police? Kind of what, what's your job there? Sure. I was thinking about that today and how we did differ from a civilian police. A lot of times when I, where I was stationed, I was like a, a field MP. So we would work the road just like a normal civilian cop, go out and, you know, checkpoints and, and police traffic and, you know, directing traffic and stuff like that. But also we would take like two weeks out of the time to do like, you know, combat training as we would as a military police officer in wartime. And also on post, we would guard the gates of the post. You know, we would be checking IDs, who's coming in, who's coming out. We'd be up on command posts, looking watch. And that's not really something that civilian cops do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for field MPs, is there, a, is there a garrison MPs? Is there kind of different branches there? How does that work? Yeah, there are um, different branches depending on kind of where you're stationed at. A lot of places like Fort Jackson's mostly a garrison unit. So they're all just really working the road and you can get a lot of schools like MPI, stuff like that there. Now field units more like Fort Bragg or Fort Drum, stuff like that where they're always, they're, they're taking turns. So each unit or each um, platoon takes turns working the road and working the field. Okay, cool. 
could you could you give us kind of like a, a day in the life or like maybe an interesting story even you know like what was a fun thing that you did sure so well i didn't spend a whole lot of time in the united states my first duty station was in south korea and so i do have like maybe a, a story from there um so um working in a field unit like i said we'd go out for two weeks training and during that time we would be working in all different elements, you know, setting up tents and living. It could be wintertime, you know, really hot out and also being like sleep deprived. So four hours a night of sleep, plus getting up on guard watch during the day, you know, we're convoy, tra convoy training, you know, clearing buildings, working on stuff like that, that we would be doing in wartime. And now looking back, that was very beneficial to what I would have been doing in or what I did do in Iraq. So yeah, it was, it was, you know, I loved that part. It was fun. It was like getting down and dirty and really, you know, what it was all about. I did like, you know, working the garrison unit as well as like being a cop, but finding out me as a person, as myself, that just wasn't really my niche. And like, I kind of felt bad pulling people over and stuff, but, um, you know, working, working the gate and stuff, it was, it was grueling, like 12 hour shifts in the elements too. And you work 12 on 12 off 12 on 12 off you know and then you do you do shift work so every two weeks you do days and then swings and then mids and then days and then swings and then mids so the time you got used to sleeping one way it would change another way and that was just the life of it but it, it did it did teach me a lot you know uh, a lot about just you know my myself as a person and self-defense you know life skills yeah, that it sounds pretty grueling, you know, that you, you know, you're out in the field, you're doing all the same stuff the grunts are doing, sleeping in the yeah. snow, sleeping in the rain, clearing buildings, but then you're also pulling 12 hour shifts working on the base, you know, the grunt, grunts don't have to do that, they go home at night and go, you know, play PlayStation and stuff like that. Yeah. So it certainly, it certainly sounds like if you were looking for a challenging job, you know, that it sounds like you found it. So were you happy that, you know, a lot of people join the army or the military and they're like, this job was not a good fit or it was a great fit. You know, where, where do you think you fell on that spectrum? I, I loved it. I did. I, I, I loved the physical aspect, like working out me as a person. I've always been like that and being challenged. I, when I was in Iraq, actually, I worked so hard. I earned a slot in airborne school just because I, I really loved it. I really just like, it, it brought out a lot of good in me, but I, I give a lot of credit to people who do serve 20, 22 years because it's, I don't care what job you have in the military. It, it's hard, you know? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Just on a side note, I think you're the first person on the show who's stationed in Korea. Could you tell us a little bit about what living in Korea is like? Yeah. So just even just stepping off the plane, like I didn't realize or even didn't like comprehend it, but it is a third world country. And it, I mean, as soon as you step off, it does not smell like fresh air. So thank God America that we have fresh air because it is just like, I don't even know how to explain it, but it's just like, it's, it's very foul. And a lot of people get really sick the first few days and stuff like that. But, it, you know, it was a really awesome experience. Um, just like, you know, you, at me as an MP, we got to go to different locations, like down up in Seoul. I was stationed in Camp Humphreys, which is in Piontech. It's just a little tiny town, but you could take the bus or like a taxi cab, Odyssey. <laughs> that's the, you know, the uh, Ajima Odyssey. That's Ma'am and Sir over there. And, you know, you just kind of got into the culture. 
you, you did have in your free time could go outside of the wire and there was always a curfew at midnight, which part of being an MP was making sure everybody, I'd have to go outside the wire and check the bars and stuff like that in our town and make sure everybody was cleared out. And, but you got to experience the culture, you know, sit on the floor and eat rice and all of that. But it definitely was eye-opening to little tiny town I grew up in to this whole big culture shock because it, it is different. And did you know in South Korea that over there, they either have to join the, their military or join our military as a Katusa or they have to work in a factory and or go to college. I think it's like, or I don't even know if college is first one, but they have to do that. Like they have to contribute to society. And we worked with Katusas. So in our platoon, we had maybe like four or five Korean soldiers and they lived right in the barracks with us. And they kind of spoke decent English and, you know, they taught us some of their language and they learned right along with us. It was interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So where kind of chronologically in your in your military career was this like 2002 or where? Uh, so I went to I went to basic training in 2001 and that was my first duty station. So 2001 to 2002 and I was there for 15 months. It was only supposed to be 12 months. But, and I was all excited to go home. I had orders ready to go back to the States. And they're like, nope, it's a stop loss. You got three more months. So a bunch of us got stuck over there for another three months, but That yeah. se seems like a lot of the stop loss was pretty common in the early 2000s as the United mm -hmm. States was transitioning to a wartime military. I know a lot of people kind of got, got screwed. They you know, got kept on past when they were supposed to get out of the military or had deployments yeah. repeatedly extended. So I'm sure, I'm sure that was not great. Yeah, it is what it is. So, you know, you just dealt with it at that point. You have three more months, so. Yeah. yeah. So so then what happens? You know, you leave Korea. Then what comes next? So I, um, leaving Korea, I got airborne school and route to Fort Bragg. So I went to Fort Brenning Airborne School. Went to Fort Bragg. I was there about a week and I got orders to Iraq. Um, my unit was actually already over there. There was just the back unit back with me. And I had got all my gear, had two weeks to train, went out in the field with a couple other um, soldiers. I was a specialist at the time and them being privates. They sent us on a civilian flight. I was in charge of these privates. I'm the specialist. So we're going. Got a flight to Kuwait. Was stuck there two weeks waiting for a flight into Baghdad. When I got to I finally got to Missoula because that's where my orders were, you know, drove truck out to Missoula and I was appointed to my platoon and my unit and it wasn't even with any of those soldiers that I knew that I got to train with. Like I didn't even know a single person over there. That was really unnerving to me because when I was in the back unit, they were telling me about, oh, there's this guy over there and he's really going to be bugging you and all of this. And I was just like, okay, so I'm aware of this. And sure enough, he was in my unit and my squad. And so it, it was just like starting out my first day, you know, we're getting 
they're like, you can just ride along today. So we get in our convoy, go outside the wire and driving around through the city. We have different checkpoints and um, that we go through through the night. And, um, you know, we're getting fired at and stuff. And I'm like, oh, you know, is this stuff like they're just like casual. They've already been there a few months. And I'm like, wow, that was the point where I was like, what did I get myself into? like wow that's you know uh when both times that i deployed it's both with people i knew which makes a big difference you know mm -hmm. being being in a high stress situation like that if you don't know the people around you you haven't trained with them that's incredibly difficult you know you and i'm sure it's also uh, they probably have a, a certain sense looking at you being like you know i don't know her i don't know how she's going to react was was that hard fitting into this unit full of people that you didn't know Oh my gosh. Yes. It actually ruins my whole military career. And I, you know, I'm just like putting this out there, kind of being a voice for other people. Cause I know other people have been through this too. And I was, you know, I did pick an MOS that was combat and I knew that, and I trained with mostly men. And so over there, I was only one of two females in my whole platoon. And me coming in as just out of airborne school, a female, a specialist. So like, and then they put me in charge of other guys that have already been there. Like they had no respect for me at all. Like, and they were like, there were people over there leaving their guns up on the, up on their weapons up on the Humvee. And I'm, you know, trying to discipline them. And like, you're going to get us killed. And nobody listened to me. Like it was, it was bad. And so while I was over there too, so that, that um, fellow I was talking about earlier started sexually harassing me and it just, it went to a whole big thing. And I tried to tell somebody, tell somebody if I can just change squads, same platoons, go to another unit. Nobody listened. I was just stuck there and I did not feel safe at all. Like I had maybe like a couple buddies I kind of trusted, like I build a rapport with, but other than that, I've like, just, I didn't know them. If I had gone over there with a unit from Korea that I trained with all the time, you're out in the field training for war, like, hell yeah, I'd be like so much in a different state of mind. I feel like the military put me in a, in a bad place. And I had a lot of, you know, bad feelings towards that. Now, you know, going through a healing journey of it, I, I think differently, you know, I'm thankful for the things that I, I've been through, but I did end up experiencing military sexual trauma and like tried to tell somebody and nobody listened. I actually ended up getting disciplined for going up above the chain of commands. Like I was literally stacking MRE boxes up into a pyramid, taken back down, stacking back up, taken back down for hours. Finally, I said, screw it. I'm not doing anymore. I actually tried to commit suicide because of all that. Like I just felt like I had no safe place. I, I was getting either running from mortars and RPGs or, you know, I have dudes that I can't trust. And I, I, those were supposed to be my battle buddies and I didn't have that. And so I had nowhere to go and they ended up sending me home early. I was there for eight months. I got honest, honorably discharged early out of the military. I, I, I didn't look back. I was just ready to go. I knew if I would have even fought to stay in, I'd just be back over there again. And, you know. I'm so sorry you had to go through all of that. You know, you, you'd like to think that when you're 
inside the wire back on the base that it can be a safe space that you don't have to worry about the people around you that your higher ups have your best interests at heart and you know obviously that that wasn't the case for you and that's that's so disheartening to hear that you know we people were treating our soldiers like that i i think that's something that's come up in the news a lot more maybe in the last couple of years do you feel like you see these stories coming out? How, do, how does that feel now to see other people talking about very similar things that happened to you? Yeah, I, I'm glad that they can speak out because you know I held it in for like 10 years. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't talk about the military. I didn't tell people I was a veteran. I just like held all of this stuff inside and what a not so fun way to live. I will say that in like something triggered it, you know, I got into full blown PTS and it just all those things came fumbling back and and then finally healing myself into where now I can finally talk about it and and you know even be like okay with it that it happens because now I can help other people that have been through it too. I actually went to a couple veteran retreats because I had already been through the VA system. I had been on a, you know, a bunch of medicine and just, you know, already been institutionalized, all of that. And, you know, I had been in a bad relationship and got triggered by all of what happened. And I was like full-blown people. Yes, like I couldn't even drive without hearing like, you know, loud noises and thinking it was an IED. I couldn't like trust anybody. It was and I was having like suicidal thoughts and I was on like medicine at the time, decided to to get off of it. And it was just really not in a good place. And I didn't know where to reach out. And I just Google searched like help for veterans with PTS. And I found this place called Angel Fire in New Mexico. And it's the National Wellness and Healing Center in Angel Fire owned by Janice and Marcus Hodel. And coincidentally, we have an open slot for this retreat that you can go to and it starts in two weeks. And I went there and it's like this, it's just this beautiful environment that they they have for people that they open up this, this space and provide like a seven day retreat. It's all paid for free for veterans. So if there's any veteran out there feeling like I was feeling like know that there is help because there are retreats and out there that are, are there for you and they're all natural and they're holistic and you know you heal from the inside out because when you experience all that trauma you also hold it in your body and so releasing that through like acupuncture and massage therapy and just having a space of veterans that have been through the same experiences similar experiences that you have and you it's just like having that camaraderie building that tribe again and um, releasing all that and learning how to heal and learning about the brain and different different tools that you can take back home with you that I still do practice yoga and tapping. And, you know, those are things that I use daily. I have to, I'm going to have to, and be okay with that. I'm so happy that you found someone that can, or, you know, an organization that could help you out there. That's, you know, there's far too many stories that don't have such a great ending. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that, you know, had these experiences to try and, you know, keep moving like that. That's really impressive, you know. That's, that's just wonderful. Yeah, just veterans like you and I out doing, out helping each other, just spreading the word, you know, bringing enlightenment. It's, it's what it's all about, this community that we're in. It's, it's a beautiful thing. I think, and maybe, maybe you've seen some of this, there's a bit of a stigma in the military about, you know, if you're, if you're having trouble or, you know, it, 
the military is not a good place to talk about if you're having trouble <laughs> because it's, you know, people think that you're being weak or you're being lazy or you're a malingerer, you know, insert military cliche here kind of thing. Do you, do you think that that culture is changing? Like, have you, you know, having been in the beginning of the Iraq war and kind of seen things now 17 years later, 18 years later, do you think that's getting better or worse, the same? Any, any thoughts on that? How the, uh, can I ask you how the culture is changing in what way? Like, do you mean? Do you think that people, people getting help, people have going to Iraq and having a hard time or people being abused by other members of their unit, you know, anything like that. Do you think that the, the culture around that is changing in the military or in, even in the civilian world with the way that we look at vets? Yeah, and you know, I, I'm not really sure I have the answer to that because I don't really know. I really hope so. I, I would have faith in the, you know, I have some faith in the system that they would be, you know, more aware and with more people speaking out that they would want to to make a change and crack down. I know the military does have some different, you know, um, rules and regulations in the place than when we both have served. Um, but I'm not exactly sure what that is, but I, I just know that, you know, just, I'm just doing my part so that, you know, people that if they do go through those, that they know that it's okay to speak out and that that stuff does happen, you know, and it's, it's not just in the military world. It happens in the civilian world too. I think that, you know, like women are now, you know, going to, to be rangers and, you know, stepping up to the plate and I think infantry now too. And just like, I guess that's kind of like where I was starting out as MP though. That's when it just was coming through. So hopefully that, you know, you know, the, the system, the men, you know, they have respect for these women that they're doing that they're, they're doing exactly as they are. There's no different standards. The standard is the standard. And if they can keep up, then they should be treated equal. Like everybody wants to be treated equal. A man wants to be treated, you know, a certain way too. But, you know, I feel like if they can, if they can hold, hold their weight, then let them, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I have a, one of my sisters was a golden glove boxer once upon a time, you know, her, <laughs> Heard a lot of jackasses say, you know, oh, women can't be in the infantry. You'd be like, buddy, you should meet my sister. She's 5'10, can knock your head off. Like, you know, if they can, yeah. if, if they want to do it and they can do it, I, I, you know, they deserve all the respect and encouragement that anyone else gets. Yeah. And I want to say that it happens to men too. So it's not always just women. It happens. It happens. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you have any things for anyone who's listening out there and, and might be saying to themselves, you know, I, I've been struggling with, you know, some aspect of my military career. Do you have any kind of words of wisdom? Maybe they don't. I know you said you tried a lot of different organizations that didn't work out for you. Do you, do you have any words of wisdom for kind of how to cut through like the clutter at the VA or an, any other organizations that might be worth looking at? Yeah, definitely. So I did and already mention national wellness uh, and healing, but if you've been feeling like I had been feeling or, you know, feel like you need to get help and you're just tired of the system of going through the VA, because I feel you. OWR, Operation Warrior Resolution, it's based out of Sarasota, Florida. The CEO, Kendra Simpkins, um, she has brought about this healing retreat. It's a five-day retreat where uh, veterans go and they stay in this beautiful house. It's all free, um, you know, healthy, nutritious meals, and they do massage therapy and yoga. And also she brings forth rapid resolution therapy, which I am now a 
practitioner in because I've been so passionate about it because it literally changed my life from being able to thrive rather than just survive every stinking day. You know, it is just, it's a different kind of therapy. Um, it's different than traditional therapy where you would come to me and tell me how you've been feeling. And then I'm going to tell you, you know, some tools or things that you can do or try to help you interpret it a different way or EMDR where they have this different, you know, that almost killed me because I was going to, I had to go all the way to an hour and a half to the nearest VA and then then do an hour long session and then come back and I was like in war because that's all I was talking about and I had to go home and be mom and I was still at war and like I couldn't do it and so this kind of therapy it actually allows where the person doesn't even have to talk about the trauma you can just give me a headline and I'm just going to give you and your subconscious a new way of thinking about it where it's going to kind of put it back in this little box back here instead of just running at the forefront of the brain where everything incoming is coming in and so it's not all getting mixed up and it can just be stored as a memory now without the emotion attached to it and so now I can talk about IEDs and I can talk about my experiences in the war and not have an emotional outburst because I I now have the ability to just recall that as a memory and so that has been so beneficial to me and I've been helping other veterans and other people I come across using this tool as well and coming out of that retreat I was so healed and then told Kendra hey I'm a life coach how can I come back and help I just want to help come serve wherever you want to put me I mean I'll cook whatever and so I've been going back ever since just you know really seeing like veterans coming in and leaving in a whole new light, light as a feather, just dropped all that weight, dropped that rucksack down and can just start living now, finally, because us as, you know, people coming out of war and trying to integrate back into civilian life, like we're not the same person. You know, we, we just have been changed. We've been in different cultures. We experience things. Most people can't even begin to think about or dream about and and then expect it to just live this normal mundane life and not really have that sense of community that tribe anymore and that's a huge part of it too because now I have this veteran tribe from people all over the United States and you know if I need to call a brother up I can or a sister you know that's what it's really about too and um so Operation Warrior Resolution like they have a you can look them up on Facebook you can find them um on their web page and if you need help like reach out. I, I really like that technique that you're describing of taking such an emotionally charged memory and just turning it into kind of a, a, a compartmentalized memory. I have a good buddy of mine was talking about, he calls it uh, getting in the time machine. Ooh. So you're talking about, you know, driving this long distance to go to a VA appointment and coming back. And it's, it's so emotionally draining and, and physically draining to sit down and, and think through, you know, some of the worst days of your life. And yeah, his idea of it sucks to get in the time machine and have to go back to this point that you really don't like in your life. So having the tools to take that and, and turn it from this arduous journey back in time to just being like, okay, you know, I, yeah, this thing happened and kind of to sever that, that traumatic emotional connection. That's so important. That's absolutely wonderful. I'm glad to hear that there are people out there teaching those skills. 
Yes, definitely. And you can find me at Soul Shine Warrior, Soul Shine Warrior on Facebook. And, you know, I'm always open. I'm, I'm just provide some light and some inspirational quotes and just kind of keeping that mindset in the right direction. And that can be very valuable too. But I'm very passionate about rapid resolution therapy. And it can be very, very helpful for anybody that has experienced any sort of trauma or or experiencing things like grief, addiction, stuff like that from um, symptoms that had led up to, to those things. So Excellent. yeah, keep that in mind. Yeah, I'll, we'll be sure to include a link to your page there so that if anyone's interested yeah. or wants more information, they can, they'll know how to contact you. Yeah, great. Cool. So obviously people's experiences in the military are, is highly variable. How, how do you think about the military today, you know, about the mission, or if someone that says, you know, hey, Courtney, you were in the army, my kid is thinking about enlisting, what would you say to that? How do you how do you talk to people about the military nowadays? Yeah, it's funny. Um, you you would think that maybe because I went through those experiences that I would say like, no, don't do it. But I'm not because you know what, I, I'm thankful and I would do it all over again because the military did bring me um, forth of who I am today, a, a lot of strength. I, I did things that I never even thought I could do. A lot of integrity and just, you know, taught you about loyalty and it did teach you, you know, a lot of life lessons and a lot about who you are as a person. And, and, and if you can go through those types of things, like you can go through anything in life, you really can. And I, I really think that does a lot of good for people, provides a lot of self-discipline in their life thereafter. Although some, a lot of, I do see a lot of people do experience PTS and stuff like that coming out of it, but I'm telling you the, the people that I see that are healing and, and getting back into the mode that they were as in the military and they were high speed and now there can be high speed again. It's just getting through that and there is hope to get there. Just, yeah. I agree. I had some rough days when I was in the Marines, for sure. I would, I would also agree that kind of a net positive. How about the war in Iraq? You know, you, you had kind of the interesting timing that you joined pre-September 11th, but then, you know, it occurred before you showed up at boot camp, and then you were in the very early days of the war. So you kind of saw, you know, how intense it was in the, in the very beginning, and then watched it crescendo in the mid 2000s, and then kind of peter out to the end of the war. And then, you know, later on with the eyes of rise of ISIS taking over Mosul, where you're nearby, you know, what, what kind of, do you have any like longer thoughts on the Iraq war? When I, when I first got to Mosul, so me as an MP, our, our main mission over there was training. We were training the military, training the police officers over there. Like there were no police. There were no, there was no traffic. Everybody just was everywhere. There was, I mean, the, you would show up at the police stations and they all be like drinking and just fooling around and AKs everywhere. And like, it was nuts. And so the, actually the National Guard military police set up while I was there, they were constructing buildings and stuff and setting up an actual academy for them to, to send police through. And so while I was there, like when I, like I said, when I first got there, I mean, it was mad chaos and we would go and check on the Iraqi police stations and, you know, we would bring one Iraqi, 
right along with us. We'd have an interpreter with us and we'd bring one Iraqi policeman with us and we'd train them what to do. And then we'd go throughout the city and, and do our, our checkpoints and stuff like that and, and train them like that. And by the end of it, by the time that I left, they were, they were out there directing traffic kind of, and like they, they um, were going through the academy and becoming more like uh, our society. Also, when I was over there, that is when they got rid of the, the, the money with Saddam's face on it. And so they were mass riots over there and we had to do a lot of riot control and actually, and, and I had to work at the bank and like search people as they were going coming in and some people were not happy about it and some people were it was really a mix because as a, a police officer we would you know drive around the little tiny streets and we kind of get to know some of the families and the little kids and they were so thankful that we were there and then there were other times where you're going in after infantry and cleaning up like dead bodies and stuff and the family's calling you a pig and also you know we raiding houses and stuff you go into these homes and you go into the room and there'd be like a hundred AKs I'd be searching women and they would hide the they would hide the grenades and stuff on the women and the children and so you'd have to do a complete search and they and then they will hide them yeah and you know they it was it was a lot and you did by the end of it I did start to see a change and did you know was happy that I at least put some light in some people's lives there. Yeah, I think that's really all you can hope for. One of the last guests I talked to, he was in Bakuba, and he was talking about the beginning of his deployment to the end. In the beginning, you know, it was, it was so dangerous. No one ever was outside. So it was the eeriest thing in the world that he didn't see anyone for like a month because there's never anyone outside. But by the end of his deployment, you know, the bazaars were full of people. People were out driving, going to the mosque, going to school, going to friends' houses. It was nice to see, you know, that you you had made a difference. People felt safe now. So I'm sure it was very cool to see, you know, zero traffic control. And I, I know this, there's no traffic lights, there's no street signs, there's you know, trash in the road. It's, it's kind of pandemonium. But to see, you know, people directing traffic and like there's a police university and people are trained now that, you know, that must be a pretty positive memory to take with you. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a, a good thing that they, you know, they were even trying to, you know, and in going with it. And yeah, actually seeing a difference was good because, yeah, it was it was, you know, there were people on the streets. I remember, you know, then I mean, you, you did never know, you know, there were, could be a mortar or whatever happened. But that's just I think how it how it always was. Was it when you were there? So. Yeah. When I was in Ramadi, it was the very end of the war. It was statistically safer to be in Ramadi than in most major American cities, which is crazy. It was uh, the Sahwa movement, the Sons of Iraq, when they had literally a checkpoint at every single street intersection. So like every 50 yards, there's a police checkpoint, you know, just completely locked down, which is why it's so safe. So my time in Afghanistan was very, very kinetic, very different. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of interesting for me to see, like, obviously there been a massive war you know there's collapsed buildings and there's bullet holes everywhere and burned out parts of humvees and stuff but it, it was very safe so you know thanks in a large part to people like you that had done the work you know in the years before i got there yeah that's good to hear that it has it is a lot safer yeah mm -hmm. yeah and they still have elections you know they 
repelled ISIS out. So I think I think yeah. Iraq is it's not it's not great, but you know it's it's definitely getting there. It was absolutely yeah yeah. yeah. Um, looking through my list of questions here, I don't know that I have anything else. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about? So I, I flipped a Humvee upside down in a rice paddy one oh, time. No. What <laughs> happened? Yeah, I was, I will like those, those two, two week, uh, training cycles that I was telling you about that we did sleep deprivation. So I was on four hours of, of no sleep or four hours of sleep, you know, for two weeks on period. And I'm driving down and it's all like mud and stuff. And there's rice patties on each side. And I had, you know, I had my squad leader in there and the gunner and the gunner was down luckily. And everybody was sleeping and I'm like sitting there chewing gum. Like I even tried like the nasty chewing tobacco crap, like just to try it from like West Virginia, I mean, like just to stay awake and like I couldn't all of a sudden like we were like slow motion like a movie like upside down in this rice patty and I, I we all got out everybody was fine thank god because the gunner was up that might not have been a different story but I I come up out of there and I'm like I'm crying but I'm not crying because that I'm crying because I was supposed to get promoted that day <laughs> like shit I'm like oh no and then they have me as an MP I'm sitting back there doing all the paperwork and the first sergeant orders everybody to go back and take a nap I'm like you suckers get to go take a nap I'm stuck here in the rain doing paperwork and then they made me drive it they flipped it up over and drove it right back out of there they're like tell back you're driving it and I did get promoted that day because the first sergeant said I had integrity so there's that, but that was a funny story. Like it happens. <laughs> That's it's one of those, like people see, you know, on the news, they they watch war movies or stuff. And it always seems so high speed. You know, everyone is real calm, cool, collected. They know what's going on. You know, the number of times I just fell over on patrols or like fell yeah. into a canal or got stuck in the mud and my boot came off or yeah, people rolling Humvees over it just right. happens all the time. Yeah, that's all I've got. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right. I want to thank Courtney for talking to me. But before I go, I want to make one quick point. I think everyone understands a lot of the physical courage that gets displayed in wartime. You know, the kind of thing that people get medals for. But there's another kind of courage, moral courage doing the right thing, even when it's difficult. And I think Courtney really exemplifies that. She struggled for years, but she never gave up on herself. She kept fighting. And as she developed the skills to move on in her life, she turned around and started teaching those skills to other people who needed help. That kind of courage, that moral courage, is incredibly important. And I really want to thank Courtney for demonstrating that. And I want to thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.